If it's a cuss word, we're using it. Be advised. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm a queer black feminist scholar. This is Darren, hailing from the mean streets of Anaheim. I'm an introvert, a novelist, and a nerd. We're early 30-somethings with three kids and over a decade of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness and adult life. We do adult differently. This is That Black Couple. Greetings. Get your Hennessy. Get your coffee. Have a seat. So, this is Jen. This is Darren. And this is our first episode. And we are so very glad that you are here. And we realize that since you've never met us, well, some of you have, but you might not know our backstory. So we decided that on this first episode, we will devote it to telling you a little bit about who we are. And we will give you some background on exactly how we became that black couple. It's a beautiful story. So like I said, grab that Hennessy. Well, pour the Hennessy in the coffee because then it won't be as bad. Try that. Darren. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Okay, so if you wouldn't mind, just kind of close your eyes for a moment and imagine that it's moving day at college. For the two of us, it was the year of 2002, August, in Los Angeles. It was swelteringly hot. Yes, it was. But I was excited because I was going off to college in L.A. at USC, the best school in the world. And not only was I going to USC, I was living on the black floor, otherwise known as Somerville Place at USC. If if you're not really familiar with the idea, it really is just like that show dear white people where they had a whole dorm that was where all the black people lived at usc we really had a floor where only black people lived and it was a black themed floor and let me interject two of the main characters from dear white people actually lived on somerville so it's actually really weird but yes continue right so they're really perfect for the show but so so i was moving in there i was really excited i had both my parents there um, you know, all the parents were there lined up trying to get in the elevators, get all their stuff, all their bags. And, you know, there was chicken, <laughs> of course, because it was a black floor. We had a little common area. We had some we had some chicken. I almost want to say it was Roscoe's chicken. Was it? No, I think I think she got it from um, Rouse. I think it was from Rouse down the street. No. Remember, she had that catering person that she liked. Yeah, I think it was catered. Yeah, it was catered. Yeah. Right, but we had we had we had a little fried chicken spread. And so as everyone was moving things in, their parents and, and, and the students could come in and kind of socialize a little bit, eat some chicken, take some back to the room, trying to create, you know, a community from the first day. And I'll never forget. I was I was I was struggling a little bit because I was with my, two of my parents who are not together. And so having all of us together and trying to have this kind of warm moment was a little little difficult for me because I was ready to just go and be in college. Long story short, we all got our stuff moved in and we were supposed to create kind of like a family like area on the floor. And what ended up happening is it was kind of like a three day, what I would call like a retreat. No, you can't go that fast. What did I skip? You didn't tell them that I had on an Echo tracksuit. That's true. On moving day. That's I had true. a matching 
gray Echo Unlimited tracksuit with black and white J's. Yes, you did. I remember. We're not going to skip over that. that. That was important. What we're not going to do is skip over the Echo tracksuit. Now, it didn't make sense because, like I said, it was sweltering hot. It was sweltering hot. hot. <laughs> and, and at the time, I know your mother was not feeling well, no, so you wasn't. were moving all of your stuff by yourself. <laughs> I absolutely was. <laughs> but I wasn't about to be out of style, though. But you, but you look good. It was 2002. You look good. And Puffy said, wear it. And I wore it. <laughs> I just want to put a note in that. So yes, continue. Duly noted. But yeah, so the the whole the whole thing is, and we had this whole retreat where where you know staff got us all together, and we did all these exercises and did things with each other, and we're supposed to you know create friendships and bonds that will last forever and into eternity. First, we we did some um, some trust exercises mm-hmm. where you know you know like when you do like trust falls and, and mm-hmm. things like that, you know all that team building stuff that they, a lot of a lot of corporations and companies do that stuff to try and get you know teams to work together we had that type of activity one of them was they kind of had these like wooden boards across the floor and we were supposed to cross across these beams as if we were crossing water and so you could only stay you know on the beam if you fell off the beam you fell in the water you drowned and you had to start over or something and so you know we each had different tasks and roles that we were supposed to perform in this and jen and i were on a team together yes we were um and this was this. I think this was the first moment where we really kind of locked in. Yeah, because I I wasn't really paying much attention to anybody for most of the time up until that point. I wasn't. I don't interested. think you really wanted to be. I there. didn't want to be there. I was not checking for the whole move-in process. Everybody seemed really bougie, and I was like, you know what, I'm just here so I don't get fined. So I wasn't really checking for the whole process. But was I gonna lose that uh, trust exercise? Because no. they what they what they should not have done was when we got over, they said no one beats this. The first thing they told me, they said, nobody ever wins this. They said, so if you don't get it, don't don't be concerned. It's about building trust. And I said, oh, <laughs> your priorities are, are fucked up because I'm also going to win. And they were like, oh, no, it's okay. You don't have that. I said, okay, well, um, you have your priorities and I have mine. So <laughs> so we're going to win. And and they let me, I don't know why, they let me lead the speaking part. You know what? They didn't know who you were. They yet. didn't That's know me. Why. They clearly had not looked me up or asked anybody. So, uh, yeah, so so they let me do the speaking part. And I think everybody else also didn't want to be there. And they, I was the only person who cared. So they were like, oh, just let her lead everybody. And I think it was by the time we had, like, three people left and we were about to win. And they're like, okay, she can't speak anymore. And I looked over at you and just looked at you and didn't say a single word. And we had, like, a, like a third eye. You remember New York and her mom mm-hmm. when they had that communication? Mm-hmm. We had that thing. And I was like, oh, my with just a look. I was like, oh my God. And you started, if I remember, because you started pointing your fingers I at did. people and in different directions. And I was literally, I, I was literally your mouthpiece. It yeah. was as if your brain was in my head. It was creepy. Directing the words out of my mouth. It was creepy. And then I knew I had found my person. And so after that, I think that was the point where we kicked it pretty much the rest of the weekend. And then we had our never felt this way Brian McKnight moment. Yes. 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 That we will not reenact right now. Yeah, we won't reenact it. But but as I was saying, as a part of this retreat, one of the things was we were all going to go to Santa Monica Beach together. And they had given us these plastic boats. To put in the water. To put in the water and kind of... Kind of sail out into yeah, the sea. We were all going and embarking on a journey together. Oh. And it was all symbolic and, and nice and cute so and feel sweet. good. But, but on the bus ride up there, you know, a whole bunch of black kids and... and, and a 
big bus Mm -hmm. just chatting trying to still get to know each other and and be friends and all of that stuff and we realized that we both loved brian mcknight so did we were sitting in the back of the bus honestly i don't think either one of us was really checking for anyone else on the bus at that moment anyway and so we were kind of just like oh you love brian mcknight i love brian mcknight what's your favorite song oh the my favorite song the first one i heard was never felt this way Mm -hmm. and so we're just in our own world just chatting talking and then we started singing the song together yep Still paying no mind to anyone else on the bus. And Correct. at some point, we were still singing. Jen was still looking at me, you know, you know, off in her own world. And I kind of looked to my left to kind of see look towards the front of the bus. And I saw eyes. And my eyes were closed. <laughs> People just looking at us. And like, the whole bus was silent. It got quiet. <laughs> and I'm singing. And we had that dang Sister Act 2 moment in the chapel when Lauren stopped singing because <laughs> the sister walked in and interrupted her. And I was like, damn, this is a movie. And you look just like Lauren did. I sure did. And then I was like, I really didn't found my person. Exactly. Exactly. So long story short is we've been doing this uh, together thing for roughly 15 years. Actually, it's 15 years this month. Yeah. Good God. As we're sending our own kids off to school. As we're sending our own kids off to school. And um, we spent that whole first freshman year on campus and we were not in a romantic relationship. We didn't, I mean, we both, I think we were interested in a romantic relationship, but, you know, we were very different. I came from, you know, Oakland and I had a single mom and, you know, I had been through a lot of things in my life that really, um, I wasn't really ready to be, I hadn't even really considered being in a relationship especially not with a heterosexual or heterosexual red guy. Um, you know, I, I identified as bisexual and um, as a queer person who um, had not been interested in a long-term monogamous committed relationship, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this whole like picket fence uh, marriage thing. Also having a disability, having a heart condition and knowing that that was something that meant I would not have children. At the time I had a diagnosis that I would not have children. Um, it just really wasn't something where I, I was interested in having those types of conversations and commitments at the age of, you know, 17, 18 and 19 um, with someone else. But I also think that, you know, you were in a different place as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I live very much a, a sheltered life. Um, I spent a lot of time alone as a kid and even, even in high school. I kind of did my own thing. But really, under the under the guise and under the eyes of a lot of people, kind of watching and, and caring very much about what I did and, and, and who I was with and what I was doing. Stepping out to college for me was I'm going where I, I want to go. I'm going to go and I'm going to be free. I'm going to meet people that are different from me, from different backgrounds. I'm going to go have fun. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out and experience the world. You know, that bright eyed, you know, freshman, <laughs> you know, the stereotypical college student. Naivete. <laughs> Naive, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really all about just going out and experiencing things and just being open to new ideas. Really not anything romantic at all. Right. And I think that that's one of the things, too, is that we didn't come into a relationship with the intention of coming into a relationship. Right. We were friends. I was, at the time, an independent minor. I didn't have a relationship with my parents. Um, I was a survivor of sexual assault, very recent sexual assault when I entered college and was homeless when I actually got to school. So, you know, we clicked because of shit. Well, being friends. Well, yeah, we were just good friends. And I, what was also interesting, I think, about our relationship, just as, from a friendship going into a romantic relationship, is we grew up very differently, but we grew up also very, similar. very much the same. Like, uh, yeah. we saw a lot of the same things. We were interested in a lot of the same things. Um, both nerds 
both nerds, and then and then to some degree, even some of some of the sadder, more hurtful things, right. we even shared some of those things in common. Right. And so, even though we were very different people from very different backgrounds, we we really clicked very easily on a lot of subjects. Right. So the question is then, how do we become that black couple? How how does a queer, ratchet ass, uh, black girl from Oakland, um, <laughs> couple with a nerdy introverted guy from Anaheim? And, um, I mean, the truth is we were really spectacular friends, spectacular friends all through freshman year. It became romantic our sophomore year and we, ugh, so cheesy. I don't want to say it. Oh God. It's so cheesy. It's real life though. We fell in love, I guess. Oh God. It's so <laughs> cheesy. Don't be so sad about it. It's so cheesy. Um, and, uh, you know, we were together all through college. And so what ended up happening is that like, the tram driver and the cafeteria workers, the security officers on campus, like they started recognizing us because, you know, I'm six foot four. And they'd be like, oh, you're that that girl who's dating that short guy. And it'd be somebody who's like <laughs> five four talking about you dating that short guy. I'm like, and I'm like, you do realize he's six one. He got you exactly. by a cool seven inches, right? And they're like, yeah, but but he that short dude. I'm like, mm, yeah, okay, girl. <laughs> so, I mean, we ended up being called that black couple because we went to a predominantly white in- institution and, you know, in some ways, very anti-black institution. People would say, oh, you know, that black couple. And they'd be talking about us. And so we kind of took on the moniker of being like that black couple um, because it's, you know, we have this hyper visible black woman, uh, queer black woman who often has, you know, as you all know, I have bright red hair right now, but I've had blonde, blue, blue purple, uh, short afro, long afro, braid to the butt, twists. I mean, I tend to do lots of things booty short, booty skirt, tattered jean. I do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's the hyper visibility of my body of my very queer black body and then what that looks like when coupled with what people read as a very heterosexual very kind of like respectable respectable black man and so we always get questions like how does this work oh my gosh and so that's really what this podcast is about it's about how when you're black when you're black in a country that is anti-black and in conditions and environments that are anti-black or predominantly white, um, how by nature of being black, showing up in gender and showing up in relationships, showing up in couples or in other roles, um, it just shifts things, you know, showing up as a mother, showing up as a coworker, showing up as a friend, showing up as a dad. It just, it just shifts things. And so we're really here to talk about the blackness of adult life and what that means for us. Um, this is not a relationship podcast. It's not about giving you life advice because everybody got to live on their own terms and show up in the ways that work best for them. But yeah, that's how we became that black couple. Welcome back, everyone. So, 
What we're going to do now is give kind of a high level teaser overview of some of the topics you can expect us to cover during this first season of the podcast. So I think we're going to talk about today, just like gender roles, class and capitalism and sexuality. I know that sounds like annoying and maybe a little overwhelming, but really it's not. So just stick with us for a second. Let's talk about gender roles, how they show up, what it means when you're black and adult and you got to do gender in public. For us, we've, I mean, gender has been kind of a big part of what we had to face um, united as a couple. One of the big things I remember during our years of dating, we used to go to movies all the time, like every weekend, every all the movie, time. same movie theater. We Almost always, every day, sometimes. We, <laughs> You know, yeah, there were some times we went multiple days in a row. Yes, there were. Because we just loved to go sit in a movie theater together and probably go get a slice of pizza or a Johnny Rockets hamburger after. That was just kind of what we did. Yeah. And we always went to the bridge in Los Angeles. That was that was our spot. I mean, just just like on campus where, you know, the security guards and the tram drivers knew us, the, the staff at the bridge knew us, and they saw us coming, and they were happy to see us because we were, once again, that black couple. But one time I remember we went we went to the movie theater. Jen went in first, and then I kind of came right back out of the theater. She went to go get the seats, and I went to go get the concessions. And as I was walking out of the theater, a white man was coming out as well. And he kind of was, like, walking kind of right on my heels. And he said, wow, um... But she's taller than you. Like he didn't didn't introduce himself, didn't say hi, didn't didn't say any type of those pleasantries. Just wow, but she's taller than you. And my response, I was kind of shocked at first, like, um, yeah. And I think he said it again. He said, but she's but she's taller than you. How? Like he was he, just just looking at us visually. Didn't know us at all. Didn't I mean? Didn't know our names. Didn't know our backgrounds. Or also anything. white. Also white. <laughs> But all that didn't, didn't know us at all. But but he was so shocked at just the vision of us of a black couple, um, a man who is six six one, and a woman who is six four, and just the idea that we could be in a relationship because she was taller than me was that stunning to him that he couldn't even control himself and keep those thoughts to himself. He had to try and get some information from me to explain how that could ever make sense. Absolutely. And that and that's the type of thing that that we've that we've really faced as a couple where people look at us in our relationship and they have these ideas of gender norms and and how men and women are supposed to operate within a relationship. And they just apply those things to us. And then when we don't fit, they're just bamboozled. And across the binary, right? So not just across heterosexual relationships, right? So it's this idea that you see this when people are in relationships that are not read as heterosexual binary coupling they always say things like asinine things like well who's the man like right like who's the woman it's like you are an idiot like that is the this commitment to like gender normativity it permeates so much of people's lives that like the commitment to patriarchy that they can't understand that the size of someone's body has absolutely nothing to do with romantic interest or attraction like the actual height of someone's body has absolutely nothing to do with their gendered life and their gendered experiences. And I keep thinking it's funny because every time you tell this story about the movie theater, it gets me because he was waiting for an answer, right? He's like, 
but she's taller. And you're like, uh, it's like, what's, I don't know what to say, right? Like, it's like you right. owed him an explanation. Like, yeah, I how, owed it to him. You, how do you walk in public with this person? Or, like, it's almost like he was asking, how do you do it? It's like, ill, first of all. And then, second of all, like, do what, right? And <laughs> in the problem that I have with this is often that because people, because people often, like, see my body as masculine, then they see your body as feminine. Right. Right. And so you being a heterosexual red male, then they they try to feminize you because they can't figure out how else to deal with me. Right. And the whole the whole the whole point being to st- try and stuff us and fit us into the norms that 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 they have embedded into their heads as to how people are supposed to interact and and walk on this earth. Right. And I think that's one thing that I've always really loved about our relationship is I think we fought very hard to not fit into those standards and those norms and really just see each other as people and love each other as people. And that's why, honestly, when he said that to me, I was really confused because I never looked at you and said, this is a woman who is six foot four and that therefore means blank, blank, and blank, blank, and blank. You know, I always looked at you as a person and I always was attracted to you and loved you and admired you for who you actually were, not what your height was or what your hair looked like or what shoes you had on that day or what type of makeup you had on or or any of those other things. It was you, the actual person. Right. And I think, I mean, we talked about this before, some other examples that we've had that have shown up and how people often try to protect their ideas about gender roles onto our relationship without our permission. And you brought the example of us moving to Chicago. Right. So, you know... Your, your whole thing, we, we, we always, we, we have a lot of like five-year, 10-year plans. We, we are very organized and deliberate about what we do in our lives and making sure that we are doing what we want and fulfilling each other's needs and desires. And, you know, Jen, you wanted to get a PhD. Yep. And you wanted to go to the best school that you could get into. And we said you, Chicago, was the best school. And I was very supportive and said, well, if that's the best school, then you got to apply to the best school. Even though I was afraid of snow. Even yes. you and you're afraid of snow. I mean, the idea of moving our whole family, you know, across the country, literally, that was a scary prospect. But we said, that's what you want to do. Let's see if we can reach it. And you got in. And then the plan was, OK, you got in. That means we're going. And a lot of people were really taken aback by the idea that this that this is how people phrase it to me. They couldn't understand how I would allow that to happen. Right. As if because I am a man in a relationship that means I lord over everything and I direct what what is allowed to happen and what what isn't allowed to happen. Right. And so to me that works on two levels. Number one saying that I'm really in that position of the number one spot and what I say goes. Right. And number two the fact that people were really confused about the idea that I could be supportive about you going and achieving your dreams. Exactly. Right. It just does, it never even made sense to me. Right. It's actually kind of scary when you think about this this idea that that me being an autonomous human, right, who was fully capable of achieving an education and got into a really great school, and because I I made the choice to couple with someone and have children, that I am now what expected to forego every single goal or aspiration I've ever had in my life, unless you grant me permission that's it you're done and i'm like this is this is this is not 1954 and it wasn't okay in 1954 exactly or 1920 it was never okay but that people are still saying this 
and you know this was 2014 it I don't know it just concerns me and I also think it's interesting because I think that because we're black I think that it shows up differently because I think that in some cases what they're really also saying is like oh you got that good job with them good benefits and you're gonna just leave that for her to go (laughs) you know (laughs) like like, you know like you a black man and you know it's hard out here for black men and we've heard that language before about you know you know just be glad you got a job or just be glad you got something or whatever and in a lot of cases i have been told like you got a good man with a good job don't complain and i'm like what like what girl you just gotta take whatever comes your way just take it because i have a good job we have a good job <laughs> that's it that's the end. that's the criterion <laughs> so so we'll i mean we'll talk about things like that we'll absolutely talk about things like that but we're starting to also talk about things like class and capitalism too and i want to get into that because there are ways that as a couple we navigate not just gender but the ways that class and capitalism complicate gender and that came up just now when we talked about you, for instance, maybe leaving a job to support me going to grad school, right? Because grad school, you know, we poor. We don't make no money in grad school. I mean, you make a little bit, little, little bit, um, but you're broke until you graduate. And there, it's an investment in one's college, in, in one's goals long term, but it's really not like a lucrative thing. And so, you know, you become kind of financially dependent on somebody else or you have to be independently wealthy. So what ends up happening is that, you know, it's it becomes a conversation around class because people who will be in grad school who, you know, are effectively like, you know, poor, especially if you're a first generation college student, uh, usually students of color who are first generation are either working class or middle class. Um, in, in some cases, obviously, you have people who are um, upper class or who come from generations of wealth or who are independent wealthy. But to be honest, that's just not most people's story. And in when you're coupled so you know we've been married for quite some time but for us we don't have dependency on parents anymore we haven't had dependency on parents for over 10 years right and so my coupled status means that my dependency is on my partner and how that shows up is that you know people at school make assumptions about you oh well you must be married to he must have deep pockets or you know, or they just assume they just assume that we out here balling because we have kids and stuff. And, you know, absolutely. I came from a working class background. I'm a first generation college student and you came from a more middle class, upper class background. But throughout our relationship, there's been assumptions about, you know, my class status and where I come from and what that has meant for our relationship. But it's also very interesting because in college you majored in business and I majored in engineering. So right. at times, I was making more money. Right. I mean, I guess by most standards, you should have dumped me. Well, yeah, according to kind of how a lot of people operate, <laughs> that, that means there's some there's something wrong within our relationship, or I'm not, you know, quote unquote, man enough because I'm not making enough. You should have left me, bro. I should I should have, you know, dumped you and ran on to the next one. Right. Apparently, because <laughs> because you were just making you were too much of an independent woman, you know, making her own money. Right. But I, I think what. What's what's interesting to me about that is is like Jen said, I come from much more of a upper upper middle class background. She comes from a very working class background, and so you know, coming into our relationship, we had different you know financial I guess backgrounds and, and, and upbringings. But when we came together, we kind of we didn't really operate differently. I, I always think about like like I said, we were always at the movies, but you know, we were very much college students just trying to make it. Absolutely, and so. 
we always had each other's backs. We would get there and it would be who has money this week. Listen. Who can cover dinner? Who got the tickets? USC, who got gas? USC <laughs> footed most of those bills. I got a lot of financial aid and I spent every penny. Everyone. And we enjoyed them. So did. I bought an <laughs> Xbox. I bought a TV. Do we? No. We, I bought we a, finally let the Xbox I bought a Nokia recently. bar phone. I remember that from uh, from Crenshaw. From Mom. Crenshaw. Uh, Baldwin Hills. Yeah, Baldwin Hills. That's right. <laughs> so but I mean, but that I mean, I think that's that's what's really interesting is like you were saying. You at some points you have been making more money than me. At some points I've been making more money than you, and we understand that we're a union. And I think any relationship is kind of built on on fairness and equality. And so just because someone is making more money doesn't mean I have more power now or you have more power or control now. We've always kind of seen our money as like a collective pot. Right. And I feel like I don't understand how as black people, we don't see ourselves that way. I guess I'm just confused as regardless of gender, right? Regardless of gender status or sexuality in the couple or in a, in a platonic relationship. So maybe it's not a coupling relationship. Maybe it's not a romantic relationship. I don't see how we are not operating from a frame of mind that is collective, right? It's like, I'm learning more and more every day that I'm an absolute devout socialist and I'm totally okay with that. But I've always been a communal minded person. My mother raised me where if we had a little bit, we gave most of it to everybody else. We gave a lot of our time away. That was the thing that she gave away the most right. was her time. And we spent a lot of time at church. We spent a lot of time in the community. We spent a lot of time at like cousins' houses. And if we had a little bit of flour, we made cake and we gave most of the cake away. You know, and we never had cake in a damn house. I'm being like this bitch. <laughs> Sorry. I love my mama. She we a love bitch. You. Love you, mom. But this half of what makes so much cake. And I ate so little cake growing up. <laughs> I'm just being so bitter. Because she made pound cakes and cornbreads and dressing and all that stuff. And I ate so little of it. And I was in the house eating baked chicken and white rice. Because she gave it to other people. She would just give it away. And I mean, and I know what she was doing. She was, she was encouraging me to learn how to share my wealth with other people, especially folks who, who needed it. Right. And so now that's something that I do now, or I do that today. And the kids are mad at me now. I bake a cake and I cut away, cut up half of it and I take it to campus or something. And, you know, I take it to the neighbors or whatever. And that's just, you know, that's the socially minded person. That's a socialist type of person and and a, a socialist mindset. And so I think that this commitment to like, you know, gendered and patriarchal class structures and, and capitalist class stru- class structures, they don't actually even make sense when you're black and coupled. Well, and, and, and you know, I actually didn't even think about this until you were talking about the cake and the flour. Um, because I, you know, obviously, like I said, I did grow up very comfortable. You know, at no point was I really worried like, oh, we, are we going to pay the light bill today? You know, if, if I want to go to this restaurant and I ask, is my mom going to say we don't have money for that this month? Like, I never really had, money was never something in my head that was like a concern as 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 I was moving through life from year to year but my mother always raised me to be in service and it was really from the idea of we have things so that does not make you any better than anyone else mm-hmm. you still need to be in service and love and give to other people and, right. and not not just in a financial way but very much like you said in in with your time and your energy and right. so like at church i mean we, i was always there i was always cleaning things up moving tables around doing things helping people when i when i did have a car i was driving people around everywhere if, if anyone needed a ride i was the first one to say hop in the hop in the back seat let's 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 go on a ride i'll, I'll get you where you need to go 
and I think, and, and it, like I said, it wasn't ever really about money. I, I never thought like, well, that's $20. And I don't know if I really exactly. feel like putting that mo- amount of money towards whatever cause. But right. It was really about that same community mindset of, right. well, we're all in, in, here, in this together. People need things. I need things. Why not give when other people will probably give to me just the same? Exactly. And I think that's the thing is like you and I, even though we come from different, you know, class backgrounds as would be marked on a tax form per se. Right. We were both raised by pretty much social, like communist type moms. Like, I don't know if they would own that title, but they're both pretty much socialists. I mean, they both give away their time and their money and their food and their strength to black people writ large. And then, you know, we were raised by single moms. So we were in the house watching them do this and that's how we were raised to treat black people and that's how we were raised to love on black people and so it always got me when people would be like oh well you know darren needs to get his job and you need to da, da, da. i'm just like we don't even think like that no if darren is hungry i'm feeding that nigga like he's gonna eat i'm gonna feed him and if i'm hungry he's feeding me if i have money we're going to the movies because you know why we want to go to the movies and I'm going to pay for it. I don't care. <laughs> like it was never a concern. And I know that there's a lot of conversation nowadays about who should pay and who should this and blah, 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 blah. And I can't honestly, and I can't engage in those conversations because that's not my experience. I didn't heterosexual date before you. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heterosexual dated. It's not something I did. <laughs> I can't I can't do it. I don't know what this is about. I never did it. And then when I did heterosexual, I guess that's what you would call this heterosexual date you, I didn't do it right by anybody's standards. I just bought you stuff because you you wanted stuff and you just bought me stuff because we wanted stuff. And I treated you like a good friend. I treated you like someone I deeply cared for. And I treated you like um, someone who was important to me and whose life uh, was valuable to mine. And uh, that was a priority to me. Your life was a priority to me. So it wasn't about winning you over or performing for you or trying to get you to like me. To be frank, if you didn't like me, I didn't give a shit. I loved myself enough. You said that to me. Yeah. (laughs) It really wasn't about trying to buy your love or trying to buy your like. You know, like I had said before, I had been through a lot when I met you. And I enjoy spending time with you. I enjoy spending time with a lot of people. And I enjoy having black people in my life in earnest, you know. But I just don't believe that these types of frameworks, you know, gender, patriarchy, class, uh, capitalism, I just don't think that they're made for black people. They're They're just not. not made for black people. It's like trying to put on somebody else's clothes. And we walk around outside and and somebody else's clothes and they just don't fit. And we're uncomfortable. And we're uncomfortable and we're chafed. We're chafed. (laughs) Yes. And I think that in our relationship... We didn't spend a lot of time trying to put things on that didn't fit. Now, granted, we did have moments when we tried to put that shit on. We did. We did. And we'll talk about that in the podcast. That's a lot. We did that. We did that shit at times. But, uh, you know, we got over that stuff pretty quickly. Well, I, I think I think marriage is a beast. It's a beast. And so I, I think when we, when we really physically got married, for us, when we got married, it was not... <laughs> To be truth be told, it was not a big deal not in really. the moment. I mean, not really. obviously, it's a big commitment. It was, it was beautiful. It was great. It was a wonderful moment. I cried. You so did. You so did cry. Uh, but 
for us, we really saw marriage as a formality because we were raised within the church and we believed yeah. if you're going to be in a relationship and have children, you get married. And so we said, It was a legal thing. Yeah, it, it was, was like, I thing. need this contract. We were really religious in our early 20s. Yeah. We have to be completely honest about that. We really were. At that point, we were not religious. Like, somehow we're not Christians at this point. We're obviously still Christians. But we were committed to the performance of religion and the performance of public Christianity that in many ways reinforces patriarchy and other harmful gender behaviors that we didn't acknowledge at the time. Yeah. So in some respects, marriage was a part of that too. I think in some respects, we felt like we were supposed to get married. Yeah, it was like it was like a rule that yeah. you had to follow. Yeah, it was like, you've been together this long, you want to have kids, you're supposed to get married so you can have children. And, you know, we got married at 21 and 22. To be frank, we didn't really know that much better. No. And I always say if we had it to do over again, I don't think that we would get married. The only thing I find solace in in being married in is the legal frameworks. Because this country is terrible and the way it treats unmarried people is terrible. And the tax breaks and the tax frameworks that make it easier on married people, especially married people with children, the way it makes it easier for me to get on your health coverage, like I need that, especially with a disability, a very difficult disability. That stuff is stuff that I need. So if we talk about marriage, it's always for me a legal conversation. Well, I mean, truthfully, this this is one thing we always said, and you know, as as you just said, we were very young when we got married, and so we had a lot of questions. We had a lot of people saying, "I don't know, I don't know. Are you sure? Is this the right step? How do you know you're too young? Why don't you wait five years? Why don't you wait ten years?" But for us, we always felt we always felt like, quote unquote, we were already married. Right. Because that was how we lived our life. We we were very committed to each other. Right. You know, we were living together. We were our money was pulled together. We had communal money. Yeah. We were planning our lives together. So to our, us our C D collection was together. It was and you know, that was probably the biggest deal for me. We put our CDs in the same binders. <laughs> That's a big step. That's a big step. <laughs> I mean that's how we live. We live together. Can we can we pause for a minute? Yeah. Because when we put those CDs together, I think your mom and your cousin about died. They did. They were like, oh, shit. She really not going nowhere. What? Because because I think everyone knew how How you felt about those CDs? I took my CDs. They were like, this nigga is putting his CDs with her CDs? That's like the white people's Letterman jacket. Exactly. That's what it was. It, your CDs was what a Letterman jacket is. That that was... The white people. That was in... In action, that was putting a ring on it. That was putting a ring on it. For you? For me. That was putting a ring on it. So, I mean, I think to get at this whole point is I think marriage is also another one of those structures that is obviously very violent um, and has a very difficult history, especially in the United States. One that is typically very anti-black, anti-poor, and very oppressive. But for us at the time, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it was something that we thought we were just supposed to do. We performed it, you know? We performed it. So the last thing that I think we want to like kind of glaze over is sexuality. And so one thing that we've talked about a lot, we talk, we we talk a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot. We talk about a lot of deep. We talk about everything (laughs) on, on, on Thursdays at at 6 30 PM, midnight, 2 AM. We talk about sexuality a lot. And it's mainly because, I mean, we have been together for 15 years. We've been together since I was 17, you were 18. So a lot of our questions around sexuality, you know, I don't want to tell nobody's business, but a lot of our early sexual experiences were with each other. 
a lot of our first times were with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just want to put it out there. <laughs> and and that's important. That's important because, you know, questions around, like, what do we like? What are we attracted to? My queerness has come up a lot. And then questions around heterosexuality because, you know, I don't believe heterosexuality is a thing. I don't think that there's a, a such thing as straight. I just don't believe it. <laughs> I just think it's a construct that people rely on because it makes them feel good about themselves to be able to hate other people and look down on somebody and have power and privilege. And I think that there's a lot of ways that people leverage straight to harm uh, not straight people, especially folks who actually themselves are not straight. And I can say that this was something that I did a lot like in high school, knowing I was bisexual and knowing that I was closeted. There were a lot of times for me where I would like, I have a very Christian family and would feel like I couldn't be out, you know, as a queer person. And so I would kind of like embody a lot of the anti-queer language and homophobic language that I had heard from other people in my family against my own friends who I knew were queer. And so I know for a fact that that stuff is actually real and that, that that's what people do. So I think there's a lot of projecting. And so, so for us, you know, sexuality shows up in a lot of different ways because we're not committed to a heterosexual, right. uh, non-heterosexual, you know, queer, straight binary in our relationship, which also gets into questions around monogamy, which is something that we're also not committed to. It gets into questions around how does one navigate uh, relationships with one another and with other potential romantic partners, which is also something that we'll talk about. You know, so we are very much, we're very much committed to the idea that a relationship with someone, right, is not a non-negotiable contract. That's slavery. Right. (laughs) I mean, for, for our relationship, I think about really as we talk about where we started versus where we are now, we've really come a long way with with how we think about things, how we view things, what we understand. And it's always been a conversation for us. We've always had open minds to really think about things critically and take in what each other has said or, or experienced and really critically take it in and say, okay, well, what is real here? What is right? What is wrong? Uh, what is a standard that's just been imposed arbitrarily? And what and what gives people the space to live and be their full selves. And I think we've kind of been on a journey within our relationship of of understanding who each of us really is and being able to come into that fullness and accept it and have that be okay. And how that then extends out to the other people that we see in the world and how they live their lives and accepting them for who they are. Right. And I was just talking about this on Twitter today about um, like, if we're not really willing to confront this stuff as adult people, if we're not willing to talk about this stuff as adult people, then how can we as parents expect to raise in entire human beings? Like how can we raise complete humans if we're unwilling to talk about race and gender and class and capitalism and patriarchy and sex? And like, there's no way that we can raise responsible, accountable human adult people if we are unwilling to grapple with these things for ourselves. So that's really what the podcast is about. It's about understanding the ways that our blackness intervenes in these conversations and how it's shown up for us. And then in some ways, how it's shown up in our parenting. Right. Like what you hear? You can find my mom and dad, AKA that black couple on the web at thatblackcouple.com. 
You can find them on Facebook at That Black Couple, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple. If you have questions or comments about the show, email them at thatblkcouple at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. All right, so we're going to have a pretty organized podcast, probably more organized than I had originally imagined. We'll have about four general segments. The first will be an introduction, and that'll just be us saying, hey, grab your rum and your coffee and your Hennessy and get drunk and listen to us talk. The second section will be something called First Things First. And first things first is really us trying to give you some background on how we became introduced to or interacted with the story. It might be a news article. It might be a brief reflection on something that happened from our childhood. It might be some type of interaction we had recently that reminded us of an issue, or it may even be current political or social events that are of importance. Either way, it's to help us get grounded in the topic of the day. Following first things first, we'll have the conversation. In the conversation, Jen and I will dig deep into the issues of the episode to better understand how blackness and adulting intersect in the everyday experiences of young people today. And following the conversation, we'll do a brief reflection. This could be key takeaways and other calls to action that help us to really take the message home from what we learned during the episode. The good thing is we have a lot of episodes to cover this stuff, and it's semi-orderly, which should be fun and exciting. Remember to follow us on Facebook at That Black Couple, Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple, and find us on the web at ThatBlackCouple.com. And remember, be on the lookout for new episodes. And you'll only get new episodes if you look for us online. Thanks so much for listening.